that boy Joy. Um, so it's myself here, Kieran. And me, Ainsley. And today we have our second episode where we have a guest today. So I am pleased to welcome uh, Reverend Delay McCauley, who is a founding pastor and CEO of House of Rainbow. Um, so we'll be speaking to him today about a variety of issues and getting his thoughts and stuff and hearing a bit about him as well. Um, Gide, do you want to introduce yourself? Say hello to them. Hey, hello everybody. Um, I'm Judy McCauley, as you heard. Um, yes, um, introducing myself can be quite challenging sometimes, or it could be both exciting and maybe people might even think that I'm a little bit pompous. But um, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, I'm Judy McCauley. I'm black, I'm British, I'm Nigerian, and I'm gay. I'm also uh, Anglican, I'm a Christian theologian. Uh, I've been ordained since 1998, so my journey's been a long one. And I think that the other caveat that I always put on the board earlier on in introduction is mm. also that I'm a queer man living with HIV. So, you know, it's, there's so many things to talk about right, even in yeah, that introduction yeah. itself. So, yeah, that's me. And, and also, we started House of Rainbow, uh, a not-for-profit organization, 13 years ago in my native country, Nigeria. At the time, people felt that I was crazy or mad or something like that because mm. it was the same year that the Nigerian government introduced the anti-gay laws. So, right. you know, with an organization that it's so needed. It was a daring yeah. move. Yeah. It, it was indeed yeah. a daring move. And <laughs> I, have, I have left the amazing comfort of London to move to Lagos. And um, right. uh, it, it was daring. It was daring. But nonetheless, I mean, I think my journey uh, as, uh, as a queer theologian uh, continued because um, I always wanted to do more uh, in terms of uh, relieving my Christian faith and, you know, also showing that it's possible to be gay and be a Christian. So I've got a lot, long introduction, so it might just take the entire <laughs> There's episode. lots to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <that's> a, <laughs> yeah. I think your long introduction just speaks to like the level of experiences that you've had. Mm. Well, it did indeed. Um, and I think that for me, honestly, I always try to put it out there because I still hear people within the black gay community saying, I, I don't see anyone like this. Yeah. And I think that I said the same as well when I came out as gay in 1994. But I think it's important that people know that we do not need to reinvent the wheel. You know, we need to actually help the wheel to gather speed. Mm. Um, in the sense that, you know, there are people that we can look up to. Uh, but we just need to hear their voices and know where they are yeah. uh, and, and be within the same community mm. as them. And I think it's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm assuming you've, I would imagine you've been a lifelong Christian. Oh, I mean, I was born into a Christian home. Mm. Um, my parents were Christians. Um, unfortunately, my mother died about seven years ago, but my father's still living. So um, I grew up in Nigeria. Uh, precisely. I mean, I was born in London, but raised in Nigeria. So I'm one of those children that they gave birth to Lon in London, and then three years later, you right. know, we went uh -huh. back with the family yeah. to Nigeria. But I think that, you know, being raised in a Christian home has an impact on how I grew up as well. I mean, the values and uh, and the, the great thing about being a Christian, you know, the, knowing Jesus and the love of God, but it, it is also challenging being a young gay man in a Christian family because when you are in my family, we read the Bible a lot. Mm. We we read the Bible for competition in church. I competition? Mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, quiz. I mean, mm. children's oh, church. Oh, right, of course. Seriously. Yeah, right, I, I mean, my, my family, myself and my siblings, in the time that I can remember, we've always taken the first, second, and third prize 
out of the Bible competition because there was no one else that could like be yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people people felt that you know it, it was it was fixed yeah. because, you know they were children of the of the minister it was yeah. fixed but honestly the Bible was part of our anchor yeah. and apart from that you know being in a Christian home you know you always hear our parents talk with a Christian language mm, of course, yeah. um, so um, the the question around homosexuality uh, you know came up when I was in my early teens and it was problematic for me because as much as I love the Lord and I love church, I also felt that I was a disappointment, um, you know, to my family, to God and to the church. And I carried that guilt for a long time. Mm -hmm. And and I tried to uh, redeem myself, you know, um, throughout my, you know, teens and and early 20s and, and things just didn't work out the way that I, I would have wanted things to work out as someone that's growing gay. So, um, yeah, a Christian home, for starters, like I said, I mean, it, there was... N- nothing was taken away from the fact that we were raised well with Christian mm-hmm. values. But when it comes to the question of sexuality, particularly for me, because I'm so far as I know, you know, now I'm age 54, I'm the only gay person in my immediate family. Yeah. I know the relatives, like cousins who are... Bisexuals and yeah. things mm-hmm. like that. So, um, but having said that, you know, I think the challenge for me, um, because I, I mean, I will talk about this movie forwards and backwards, and hopefully you can bring me back at yeah. some point. <laughs> because um, I mean, the, the, the challenge of being gay in a Christian family that is also very conservative is that it creates a lot of confusion in how you should react mm-hmm. towards your sexual orientation and your your attractions. Yeah, I was interested to work, to, you know, to know what your experience was growing up, um, of reconciling your sexuality with your faith. Yeah, to know what, in a lot of it's probably well, I know my experience as growing up in church, probably yours as well. Yeah, um, where you hear that they're not compatible; it's either one or the other. Like you're either you're homosexual and you're in, of, of the world. Yeah, or you follow Christian yeah. faith. Yeah, or just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah. it's always been one or the other mm-hmm. until much later in in my life. To mm-hmm. be honest, I mean, I. I struggled a lot as a young person. Listen, I mean, I went, I, I grew up in a very African independent church. And let me describe that. The African independent church that I grew up in was called the Celestial Church of Christ. The Celestial Church of Christ actually carried a lot of the rituals from the Old Testament around cleanliness and uncleanliness. Right, okay. So, for example, if a woman is going through her menstrual circle, she's considered unclean and she's not allowed right. to come to church. So when she completes her menstrual circle, which is obviously within seven and eight days, she would then return to the church and at the gate of the church, she will present herself with a bucket of water and then the the priest will make prayers for her. Then she go and have a birth with the water. Right. Okay. And when she finished, then she's clean. She can then come into the church. Right. Now, with me and my sexuality, every time I had thoughts about being gay or even if I've had to you know, ejaculate or masturbate myself or had any kind of sexual contact, you know, no matter how small or big, whatever that is as a young person, Mm -hmm. I consider myself unclean. But my challenge is that how frequently will I present myself to the priest for them to pray for me? Because as a young teenager, you're experimenting, you're, you know, experiencing different things about your body. And and in that time, it's also considered a sin for you to even touch your genitals. So in in the church you had, um, that that branch, 
was it like Catholicism where you have like a confession where you would talk to a priest or like would you specify why you wanted to present yourself when you why you felt unclean or would you just um no I no we don't actually have priests in that kind of setting or we go for confession mm. but you can ask someone to pray for you right. if you feel that you know this sin of your sexual attraction is making you weak. Uh, but the danger with that is that you're going to put yourself into more trouble. And even the fear of going to somebody to say, I am having these struggles yeah. alone will put you off from carrying out that, uh, in, in, from going to them. Mm. Um, but I think that the other thing again is that because for me as well, I grew very quickly. I was a youth leader, so I was able to say those prayers for people when they come to church. So I end up saying the prayers for myself. Right, okay. So you can imagine the amount of bucket of water that I have to <laughs> make the water holy. So exactly. <laughs> no, I mean I mean I mean <laughs> the stress on the young Judah's mind mm, is yeah. just too much. Yeah. Because I mean it's, I'm sure if somebody was watching me they said Judah I've never seen you not pray over the water. So does it mean you're doing something wrong mm -hmm. every day and every night. I mean, I think it's it's so much a burden uh, on me when I was very young. Yeah, and um, and I think earlier on as well. You know, I mean, I I haven't spoken a lot about this, but I wrote about this in a book um, where I talked about you know sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, growing up in Nigeria, you know, I was bullied a lot. Um, right. When I was growing up, I had bigger lips and I had big feet. I still have my big feet up to today. So I take size 14 shoes and adults. So imagine when I was yeah. young, I mean, they, they they really bullied me. So they would take away my shoe from the start of the day. Sometimes they won't give it back. Mm -hmm. So I had to walk back home barefooted or usually I carry slippers, mm -hmm. you know, for spare because I knew they're going to take my shoe. But I think that, you know, that bully also contributed to my growth because um, I was bullied a lot around my inability to have a girlfriend or have sex with women, right. something like that. So um, some of the boys in my area, you know, then, you know, made a girl go to me and they said to me, you must have sex with her. I was going to beat you up. Right. And oh, okay. it, it, yeah. was, it, it was it was it terrifying. Yeah. It was, really it was terrifying. And, you know, honestly, for me, I, I did have sex with her. But I believe I did it out of my body. I right. wasn't present. Right. You understand me? Yeah, yeah. And and I think that for me, I was I was so afraid of the bullying, of the abuse, and they're gonna talk or they're gonna expose me. But um, the other side, the other part of my 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 teenage years was I think when I was probably about fourteen or fifteen years old. You know, I strongly believe I had a boyfriend because there's this boy that we always spend all the time together mm -hmm. in each other's company. Honestly, I always talk about this today. I didn't even know whether he knew he was my boyfriend <laughs> in all the times that we were boyfriends. I mean, it's just honestly, just being in his company, I mean, even in the daytime, we could yeah. just be next to each other, fall asleep together. I mean, there right. was nothing sexual, but just being in his company. And yeah. and, and I remember the time that, you know, you, you know, in, in Nigeria, for example, we have this phrase about friendship in my culture, Yoruba, ore is a friend, korikosu, ore korikosu, meaning that, uh, you know, friends that do not see each other, when they do not see each other, they cannot sleep. 
so cool. that kind right, of thing. Okay. I mean, these days it would be like I'm on eight hours, you know, Skype call with my friends. I mean, mm-hmm. that would be like, you know, if you're on the phone with mm-hmm. someone and say, well, you've been on the phone with them for two hours. Is that not yeah. enough? No, that's mm-hmm. my friend. He's the one I say good morning to and good night to. But I mean, this friend of mine, we had this amazing relationship. That yeah. If he's absent from school, I go looking for him. If I'm absent, he comes looking for me. It's okay. like we see each other all the time. But would you say um, it's like more like an emotional relationship? It was. I, th- I think it was a safe emotional relationship. I think it, for me as a young teenager, 14, 15 years old, it was like a security mm-hmm. that I can be free around this person. But I didn't even know whether or not they were feeling everything that I was feeling. Right, okay, you know? yeah. I mean, as, you know, obviously, growing up as a Christian, you know, I I always have a phrase in which I describe my friendship. I always say to people that, you know, I want to be your friend, like, you know, David is friend, David's friendship with Jonathan in the Bible. So I always have that connection yeah. as a young person. Like I would say, can we be friends like David and Jonathan in the Bible? You know, I'm already setting a foundation because for me, <laughs> as a young person, I was kind of idolize David and Jonathan's relationship because it spoke into my queerness right. mm. okay. to yeah. some extent. I didn't sense. know that, you know, growing up later on and studied theology that I would actually, you know, uh, consider an interpretation that David and Jonathan were actually male mm-hmm. lovers. I, yeah. I'm not um, familiar with um. Oh, okay. It's the same, it's same David and Goliath. <laughs> same David and Goliath and same David and Jonathan. Oh yeah. my goodness yeah. me! It, it's 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 well known and documented in in queer and inclusive theology that the two of them were lovers. Oh, right. Goodness. Okay. Yeah. And yet David was called a man after God's heart. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he did many other things that were I consider terrible. Not not yeah. that his sexuality is terrible, mm. but I mean, he actions, his yeah. actions. You know, for example, he committed adultery with uh, another woman. You know, put a husband in the front front line of the war, got him killed. You know, so that he can mm-hmm. be with a woman, yeah. and and had child by the woman. That one died, and they had another child by the woman. So, and and then he had wives, and then had concubines. So, and yeah. Yet he had a Serious romantic relationship with him. I man. didn't. I didn't learn about that as a um, like in Sunday school as a kid. I, I mean, mean yeah. yeah, I don't think that that devil not taught us that. Yeah, we must we, mu- we must invite people uh, to uh, one of our, our programs, a House of Rainbow, called uh, "What the Bible Says in Favor of Same-Sex Relationship." Mm-hmm. Um, it will be in the uh, first and second Saturday of May, twenty twenty. And I think that, you know, the focus is actually to look at things like the story of David and Jonathan and kind of like lay all out on the table and educate people seriously. I mean, we, we go through the Bible uh, referencing from Genesis through to Revelation and what the Bible yeah. says about mm. sexuality. So um, I, actually, you know, going back to the point of growing up in Nigeria within uh, a Christian church and my conservative Christian family, uh, it was tough because I I didn't get to be myself at all, and, yeah. and the incidence of sexual abuse was there. I mean, that was not the only sexual abuse, um, right. uh, but that was one that was I believe was heterosexually uh, motivated, if I if I put it that way. Mm-hmm. But I mean, growing up in a household where, um, even though my my parents were strict, you know, um, I I was still exposed to other adults. You know, mm-hmm. that, you know, I will, today I will call it sexual abuse because at the time I just thought we were having fun. Right, but okay. I didn't think that for me it added to my knowledge of 
whether I'm gay or not. I think I just knew that I was gay. Right. But and I also growing up in a Christian home with the Bible references, I just knew it was an abomination. Right. So okay. I knew I'm gay. I knew it was an abomination. I knew I must not do this and so on and so forth. Yeah. But I mean, when I returned to England, um, I think slightly shy of my 18th birthday, um, you understand me? All of a sudden, I became more visible. Mm-hmm to others that I didn't even know. I mean, there was a time someone drove in, in London and they were cruising me in daytime oh, in no. Chelsea. Yeah. I didn't even know, serious, I didn't even know yeah. they were cruising. I mean, it was a nice car, much older yeah. man. And the car than and, as well. So and, 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 <laughs> I, I, yeah, I always have this story at the back of my mind about, about <laughs> back in the days where, uh, I mean, the guy just stopped the car, leaned out of the window. Honestly, I, it's, Looking back now, I mean, I could have been arrested for prostitution or anything. I had a shot, shorter than shot. I was so right, okay. You know, it, yeah. like, you know, this <laughs> my my teenage late teens years. Yeah. And um, this guy just he just spoke with me on the street, and then he gave me his phone number because back in then I didn't have phone numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, not house number or mobile number. Mm-hmm. We did, we used uh, mo- the um, slotting machines to oh, make calls. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Back in there. So it was it was things like that, you know, and I think, oh my God, this is weird. So, you know, it took me a while to connect the dots that this guy was cruising me. Yeah. You know, in order to be with me. And it took a while. Mm-hmm. But having said that, you know, I mean I struggled because when I came to England, you know, I immediately immersed myself within the Nigerian communities here. Yeah. So it was like home from home. So yeah. I mean I I wasn't missing Nigeria when I was within this community. Uh, and that also included church as well, an extension of the church that I went to in Nigeria. Right. So I got very much involved with the church. And um, um, and then, of course, so did the struggle with my sexuality continue. Yeah. Can I just ask about that? Sorry, yeah. about, like, you say, the struggle. Because I think kind of like the struggle, especially with, like, faith and sexuality, is something that I think all three of us can kind mm-hmm. of... Um, but with me, I think the way that I dealt with it was, or didn't deal with it, um, was that... Um, because I was just acutely aware that it's just like an abomination as we described it. I was just in denial basically, so I thought to myself that like, even though I have this attraction to the same sex, I'm not gay, whatever, I'm gonna try and um and pursue like heterosexual relationships. I'm gonna try and like make myself seem as straight as possible, not really deal with this fact that like I'm gay and I have an attraction to men. With you it sounds a bit different, it sounds as if like you kind of knew and accepted in your mind that you were gay, is that fair to say? <laughs> no, it's not fair to that's say. That's not fair to say. It's sorry. not fair to say. I, I knew but I wasn't accepting. Right, okay. Um but obviously when it comes to the point of contact with other men or, or boys, I I couldn't fight it. Mm-hmm. Because even though I was still within the Nigerian community, particularly this Nigerian church, in church, I was meeting guys, right? Okay, you know who were gay, and then you know we like, oh my god, we we would do sh- things together, and then we'll pray together to yeah. God to forgive us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, this was just damaging. Yeah, and um, and of course, you know, and some of the guys that I met at church then are still my friends today, and um, and because I struggled a lot uh, with reconciling my faith and my sexuality, mm-hmm. you know. Again, I could not turn to the elders in the church to mm-hmm. make this confession. So it was a taboo, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a yeah, taboo. Was yeah. So, and because I'm, I was, like I said, you know, I have grown, I've become a leader myself. Mm-hmm. So I decided that the only way is for me to turn to prayer. 
Okay. So I went right. through a period of praying, particularly a, a prayer for 40 days and fasting. So I was praying to God for me not to be gay. I am for 40 days and fasting was a tough one to okay. do. Okay. It was that yeah. yeah. It, to pray away. Yeah. I was praying. Yeah. I was my my intention was God like you gave you know, Isaac a wife, you gave Jacob a wife, I want a wife. That was my prayer. I don't want to be gay. And I was praying and fasting to get rid of these feelings and everything. And of course, you know, I mean, my friends who are gay and also in the same church were aware that I was making these prayers, but they, they, some of them would mock me. Some of them, you know, I mean, I knew someone even told me that, you know, you're gay and it's not going to change. You might run, but you cannot hide. You know, this kind of thing. I mean, yeah. people said it quite clear to me. Yeah. And this is people, other, like, you sort of your peers who were gay as well. Was peers who were or... gays and people that I've met outside of church. And you mm -hmm. understand me, when we socialize together, you know, they, they, it's like everyone has accepted that I'm gay except me. That's where yeah. the issue of den denialism comes in. Right. Mm -hmm. I was still in denial and I believe that God can do anything to change the course of this so i turned to prayer and honestly speaking when i finished my 40 days of praying because you have to be patient with god yeah you know i there was a, a beautiful young woman in my church uh, and i kind of some of the courage to ask her to go out on a date with me and when she said yes in that moment i was giving thanks and praise to god and i declared that i'm no longer gay because she said yes Right, okay. And that was truly remarkable. And also, it further um, permeates, let me use the word, it further permeates my denial. Mm -hmm. It further allowed me to accept this lie. I and mean, this was the end of the 40 days as well. This was the after. end of the 40 days because so like your prayers have been my yeah, prayers yeah, have been yeah, answered. Exactly. Yeah, God thank you. And then I started this yeah. relationship with this, yeah. Yeah, with this young woman in my church yeah. and, and everything seemed to be good. I mean, I think that the, the thing I would say is that in the early stages of the relationship, there was no pressure on me to some extent for me to be, you know, sexually active. There was no pressure um, you know, we didn't come from a church tradition where it was no sex before marriage. You mm -hmm. know, we were free, uh, you know, to to be who we to we, to be who we are in that relationship. But I think that for me, the early stages was that we lived apart. Mm -hmm. So when I'm on my own, I get time to breathe and you know that kind of stuff. But um, two years into our relationship, it was so interesting. Two years into our relationship, both of us actually just spoke about. I mean, we live apart. We're spending money apart. Why don't we just move in together and save? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, money, yeah. I mean, it was an economic arrangement, but at the same time, I did like her. I did fall in love with her. Yes, it's 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 possible for a gay man to fall in love with a woman and have a relationship. It is possible, mm -hmm. but I think that the question that we should be asking is that: is it uh, the the right sexual orientation in terms of the attractions mm -hmm. uh, or attractions? Yeah, and I think that for me it wasn't. But at the same time, you know, I kind of like went along with her. Mm -hmm. But at the back of my mind, my feelings and attraction to someone of my own gender never change. Mm. Because even when I'm with her, I notice gorgeous guys, but I have to hide how I look at them. I have to like, you know, even sometimes I remember that I've, we've been to places, i.e. if we've been to a restaurant, for example, and say we finish our meal, and then there is a beautiful man that 
I've suddenly been attracted to that guy in that space. I will wrap things up and say, oh, go, go, let's go, let's right, go. Okay. That kind of thing. You know, in order for me to avoid, yeah. you know, uh, creating a situation that will cause problems for this relationship. And, um, but having said that, you know, I mean, after two years of being boyfriend and girlfriend and living apart, we started to live together. And that was even when the pressure was more because we notice each other more. We, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, there are times where I just want to be by myself. I don't want mm -hmm. no closeness with her. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the things that I think couples take for granted, like they want to cuddle together. You know, even if they're mm -hmm. watching television, they want to cuddle. I didn't want that with yeah, her like as much as I. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm kind of like reversing the intimacy. Yeah, that, and um, and of course, you know, we did live together for a good two years. Um, so, and there were incidents like when we have friends around, you know, I mean, as much as I love women in that sense, you know, some of them do things that I didn't recognize. Like some of them would like flirt outrageously with me and yeah, I would not even notice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would get the talk after they've all gone. Yeah. Like, did you, did she was flirting with you? You allowed her to flirt with you? Listen, I was so busy focusing on James. So, so that kind of stuff. But I think that for me, it, it was also a challenge because when I'm with friends and when company of others, I continually have to adjust myself so that I'm... I mean, I was also very effeminate and, you know, in a, I'd also have to pull myself back. Yeah. And that was equally quite damaging because I'm consistently conscious of how I use my voice, how I use my yeah. hand, yeah. how I sit down yes. and all of those things. It was yeah. painful. Stifle yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And um, yeah, four years into the relationship and I think two years of living together, um, even though it wasn't a it wasn't a big deal, you know, to her family that we're living together, it became a big deal to the church. Right. That we were living together and the church called us in and said that now, you know, you should consider getting married because Otherwise, you have to live separately. And I, for me, that was too much. I mean, we've invested so much economically, you know. We've invest, invested so much in that relationship nonetheless. But the, the marriage thing was now the big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and even before the date of the marriage, I have been dealing a lot with my sexuality. Um, you know, f from the time I met my ex-wife, now ex-wife, to the time we even got to the question of marriage, I have been tuned in to what's going on in the gay community. Right. Um, okay. I know where the gay bars are. I know where the clubs are. Mm -hmm. I, I know the media. Back then it was gay times. In those days, you have to, gay times are often in a wrap sealed. You can't even open it in the shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's sealed up. So, and of course, you know, when the headline of Justin Fashion coming out is gay, um, you know, hit the, 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 the headlines. I bought Gay Times magazine yeah. for that story and I couldn't even put it on the coffee table in my own home. I mm. literally had to hide that magazine yeah. until mm. she found it. So that was another part of me. Oh my God. Like, okay. She, I, again, I denied it. I denied that it's connected with me. I just said I saw the story. I wanted to read it mm -hmm. and I bought the paper. Mm. And, and back then, Gay Times, it, it's, it's, you know, it was a, it, back then it was X-rated, sealed. You can't even open it in public mm -hmm. back in those days. So it created a lot of tension nonetheless. So, um, I mean, obviously being 
in a relationship with a woman for four years and now considering marriage was yeah. another terrifying, you know, mm. timeline in, in, in my, my life journey. So, sorry, this is done in the 90s then, because you went to Justin Fashion News, so I'll just give us... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry, it looks delicious. Um, I think that, no, in the, in the 90s, yeah, I mean, I got married in 91. Okay. Um, so yeah, we're we're coming into the nineties. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, with the pressure from the church and then family, I mean, we decided to get married. So, um, and then um, after the marriage, then comes a lot of other pressures, um, and those pressures are now sexually related pressure because I n- never knew until that point there was such thing as called window. Uh, window of conception. I never knew. Right, okay. There's a window of conception. So there was a pressure for me to be sexually active during the window of conception because now we've got to make a baby. Yeah. And mm. to be quite honest, for me that was more pressure than I've ever experienced mm. in the four years of that relationship. And then it really started to bother me that you know I have to do this, and um, I, I couldn't negotiate it because um, my culture also requires that when you get married within nine months, you must have a child. You must have a child. Yeah, you must have a child within nine months. Um, otherwise, there's considered something is wrong with you again. And I didn't want the question of the whole abomination thing to come up. Mm. I mean, honestly, eventually when she got pregnant, actually she got pregnant the following year. Uh, when my ex-wife got pregnant, I was relieved. Right. Very okay. relieved. Yeah. And then, and then she had complications in the early stage of the pregnancy that they told us that we might lose the baby. But again, as a person who prays, I just turn to God, where you're giving me a wife, now you're going to give me a child, you're going to keep this baby, you understand me? And for me, it was also the time where I started to withdraw from my ex-wife physically. Mm -hmm. And it hurts me to talk about it now, but uh, she wouldn't realize it. It's just that, I mean, just... Because, I mean, I was there throughout the pregnancy. I was there at the birth. I, you know, caught the unbiblical cord. Um, I saw my son die for a few minutes before they slap him to life. Right. Um, so that fear was there, you know. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, and the, the love for my ex-wife and my child, you know, didn't change, but something changed in me. And right. that was my own psychological well-being and my need to be gay and be myself so that challenge was there and you know what honestly is for me it was almost as if I was in a time capsule that you know there's a time things are gonna happen um, I kept some of my my gay friends you know from before I got into a relationship with her and up to even that point as well and um, when I started a conversation with some of my gay friends that you know I'm I'm gonna tell my wife that I'm gay and it might lead to separation and divorce. There was one of my friends that said that if you divorce your friend, we can no longer be friends because right. he, he was quite happy with the fact that the secret is, you know, everyone will see Jide as a married man mm-hmm. to a woman and then him hanging around with me will not expose right. him. Okay, yeah. I see. You understand right. yourself? Yeah. But if I then separate, then of course, as you know, rumors fly and they did fly. Yeah. Um, so I think for me it was, I got to a place where I think depression, anxiety, you know, it's kind of, kind of compromised uh, my mental health at the time. You know, I 
I was living in fear. Mm-hmm. And um, and I remember coming home one evening. I was really, really heartbroken. I really don't know what the trigger is even now. I just said, there's something I need to tell her. Um, that I'm gay. And in her own words, you know, she said, I can't compete with this. Right. And she was so right. And I think that for me, um, I I was hoping that there was something that we can do to work things out. But seriously speaking, there was nothing to do to work things out at that point. And by even at this point, I have grown in the church. I was one of the leaders. And when the news went back that I was gay to the church elders, it, it didn't turn out to be good. Did she break it to them? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I believe, I mean, she, she broke it to her family, mm-hmm. and I believe that her family broke it to the church because her family was part of the church. In fact, I knew her mother before I knew her. Right, okay. So, yeah. and, you know, and and again, I mean, obviously, her mother gave approval that I was a nice guy, so it got nothing to do with my sexuality. But I think that, you know, the the fact that the church got involved made it even much more painful and acrimonious. Um, the church got involved in kicking me out of my matrimonial home. You know, Sammy, you know, they came along, changed the locks. I was homeless, lived in my mm-hmm. car for about three, four weeks before I could find an alternative accommodation. And, um, and you know, things didn't get better mm. for years. So... Um, but, you know, I've never ever thought about, you know, the, the fact that I was in that relationship, you know, by deception. It was never by deception, you know. I, I believe that as an African child, as a child raised in Nigeria, particularly the Yoruba culture, you know, I was raised as a son. I was raised and educated. I was raised to marry a woman and have children. I haven't been given the opportunity to consider my sexual orientation an attraction to the same sex. Mm-hmm. So, like many people, it's going to be a denial, it's going to be an abomination because of their religious beliefs. So, for me, it, it was like that too, but honestly, I was struggling. So, by the time I, I mean, it's, it, it, when I even sometimes look at my life, you know, I mean, I met my ex-wife when I was 20 years old. So, that was pretty young. You know, four years it's later, like yeah, yeah. Four years later, we're walking down the aisle to get married, and then three years after that, we were divorced. So, like God, so by the time I was twenty-eight, I have been married and divorced right. with a child. With a child, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is a lot. Now. It is yeah. a lot. Honestly, yeah. And I felt honestly, if I had waited, say, until I was thirty-five. Even to consider marriage. I don't know, honestly. As a Christian, I always say, you know, it's all in God's time. Maybe for me, I had to go through this journey to learn something. But I seriously do not want others to go through this. Because, Mm. honestly, the pain of hiding who you are is actually far more painful than just coming out. Yeah. And and I'm not saying come out and wave the rainbow flag. Yeah. Um, Because um, recently I was talking about visibility comes with responsibility. Yeah. The fact that I am visible about my sexuality, about my Christianity and being gay and my HIV status doesn't mean that I do not have responsibility to protect others who do not wish to be visible. Yeah. Or even if they become visible as well. You know, I mean, I just posted a post on, 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 on social media minutes ago and it was about a, a, 
uh, American politician who just came out as gay, gay and then yeah. and then and then he's been a legislator, prom, uh, you know, uh, anti-gay legislation, yeah. mm. and I felt that you know what, honestly, I no longer have sympathy for people in public office who then you know hide their sexuality and then use it to punish people. It kind of overcompensate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think and the only thing I... Because my hashtag is forgiving homophobes, to be honest, because um, it was painful for me to see that. But at the same time, um, if I was to meet this guy, I would embrace him and I would welcome him, you know, to himself. Because... It, but what he did seems very unfair. But I think that we have to agree... I have to agree that he's also going through many challenges and fear of yeah. hiding his sexuality. But the other thing is that he, in that time, he invalidated so many people, yeah, even those that yeah. he would have had a sexual encounter with. He invalidated them by going back to um, the, the Senate and make laws against. And that's the responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so now that he's visible about it, he has a lot of responsibility, and he has a lot of responsibility to to undo a lot of the harm that yeah. he has done. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned that actually, sorry to cut yeah. you, yeah. just because I've, I, I've um, saw the Instagram post of him coming out and then I read about like all his anti-gay legislation that he voted in favour of and in um, in the writing that like in the um, Instagram post that he um, he did to come out to everybody, it was very like he spoke about his upbringing, spoke about like how hard it was for him about his journey and his experience and stuff. Which, I mean, I completely get, I understand. I understand why it would be so difficult. But I think the problem that I always had when someone in a position like that is that now you want to be embraced by us when you didn't want to before. And now that you have come out, that, like, I feel like I have to be with, like, open arms and accept you. And that, of course, is a gracious thing to do. But I think I'd be lying if I said that, like, that just came to me easily. That, like, mm-hmm. I just wanted to shake hands with someone who wanted to oppress me before. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I mean, that's why we have to look at the value of forgiveness. Yeah. Because, uh, seriously, I mean, even the time that he was in office, we're talking, what, six years ago, it wasn't a big deal to be gay in public office. There mm-hmm. were people who were gay mm-hmm. uh, in public office. I mean, and maybe what he could have done is to stay away from the whole gay issues and don't vote against it and get good advice and counseling yeah. mm-hmm. and people that will mentor him and say, look, if this is what you are and who you are and you're struggling with it, stay away from this subject matter. Yeah. You know, I mean, he could have been absent on that day and he yeah. would have said, well, I'm neither for it nor am I for it. I just decided to leave the issue alone. Mm-hmm. But I know that sometimes, you know, there's a lot of overcompensating. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, for me personally, I was never homophobic when I was trying when I was struggling. Yeah, I, it 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 just didn't happen at all. But I also knew that I never spoke about it, mm. you know, until I came out. And even when I came out as gay, there was still a lot of struggle. I was still trying to look for support and help, and I couldn't find any. Right. You know, particularly for people of color. But I mean, I would have to say that you know we're, we're talking in twenty twenty now, as opposed to nineteen ninety four. Things have changed, and I want to say to our community that, you know, reach out, go to the places, go to Blackout UK, go to UK Black Pride, go to House of Rainbow, you know, find those communities where queer people of color are creating spaces, 
Yeah. You know, there is a need to occupy. There is a need for visibility. And, you know, and there is a need to speak out. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, those three things are very, very important. Uh, you know, to occupy, to be visible, and to speak out. And we can do so within communities. Um, I mean, what I will also reference is that I'm sure I found out, you know, years after I came out that there were also communities of black lesbians that mm -hmm. always organize themselves. They have been actually more, they organize better than the black gay communities, mm -hmm. especially in my generation. But it's important to let people know that there's far better, more spaces now than there were before. And we need to embrace it to sustain it. Yeah. Mm. I kind of think that also, like with me, for instance, because obviously like, the first time we met was at a Blackout UK event at um, the Black, Black Man Who Brunch, of course, where Kevin and I spoke. Mm -hmm. That's where we met for the first time. Yeah. But it's like, it's only literally, like after I first heard about Blackout UK, I'd never, like, I'd never come out before then. I'd like been out for less than a year. And it's only after I kind of like took that step to come out of the week, came up with a podcast, then I started seeing that like, there's more stuff out there, there's more people, there's more support. I think that like you can get a bit of tunnel vision, especially like mm -hmm. if you're in the closet or if you're newly out, because obviously you've accepted this new reality or, or this um, situation that you're in, but you don't always see those other, th other things that are there to help you, mm. but you're just so really just into like, yourself in your own space. I think, I think, I think there is still, um, there's, there's not enough to, to support the, the black queer person. There's still not enough. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Blackout UK and House of Rainbow and... Um, many of these organizations are not adequately funded or mm -hmm. do they have access to funding. So, um, and and I think that, you know, for House of Rainbow, for example, we are diversifying our funding sources by looking at areas of sexual health. And it shouldn't really be like that. We shouldn't be using sexual health and HIV to leverage, you know, the works within the community. Mm -hmm. You know, we should be able to access you know, appropriate funding and sources of funding. And of course, if anybody, you know, is listening and know what we can do to diversify our funding sources, you know, they can always get in touch. Because there is so much to do. One is creating the space, you know, like a, a, a walk-in, mm -hmm. you know, community centre for the community where, you know, you can walk, come out to a coffee bar and you can come and play pool, you can come and play other sort of games during the day and some parts of the evening, somewhere to go to, mm -hmm. you know, um, having those peer support groups, not just when you want to talk about HIV, yeah. but obviously having peer support groups for coming out, peer support groups for families and relatives, yeah. you know, and we can have the knitting group or the football group or whatever group we want to <laughs> yeah. have, you know, to improve the social. I think that when I came out, you know, what was available was very much the... Um, uh, the, the the sex places, you know, the saunas and mm -hmm. the the dark rooms, um, and we didn't have lounges, you know. The the other set of things that I did was go to club. I wasn't a club person, and when I went to club, is when they smoke inside the club. So mm -hmm. you come out smelling like a chimney. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like someone's put you through the chimney or stuck you there <laughs> all night long. You know, your hair, your clothes, everything. It's yeah. got cigarette smoking and and. Today, I mean, it's different. There are lounges, but there's still not enough, particularly for the black LGBT community. Yeah. So, I mean, in order for that to change, we've got to do more. And I want to use the opportunity to say to people that, you know, House of Rainbow and UK Blackout, UK Black Pride as well, 
are organizations that needs to be supported in order to continue this work. Um, you know, for a few years now at House of Rainbow, we started what is called Summer Cookout. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's sometime in August, you know, where we spend a whole day, you know, food, conversations, games, and so on. It, it's always yeah. fabulous, uh, particularly in the summertime. And we do get about maybe 30, 40 people coming. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the essential part of it is that we do have jollof rice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, actually, Kevin and I are both Caribbean. I feel like I'm going to leave the Caribbean card here. <laughs> Go for I would it. say that, like, obviously we have rice and peas. And, like, uh, especially at West Africa, we have jollof rice. And I'll go on air and say that jollof rice is better than rice and peas. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a valid opinion. Um, I, I'm going to sit on the fence. I think they both have their... Oh, yeah, they're politicians. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I think, um, as a standalone, obviously, I love tomato. And obviously, just, it's just more moist than rice and peas. You can have it on its own. Yeah, you don't exactly, need anything yeah. weaved to rice. But if I was having curry god, probably, I would want... Um, Rice and peas with curry. No, for sure. Like, yeah, yeah I just think, like, add a standalone. Standalone jollof is better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's just more versatile than. I, I, I have to say, as a Nigerian, I do love rice and peas as well. I mean, I love my rice and peas with oxtail. Oh, yes. Ooh, yes. 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 <laughs> Nothing beats that one. So, um, and, you know, if I'm. Well, I'm not a big fan of chicken because I think oxtail, let's just stay with oxtail because. Right. I mean, I have a friend that cooks oxtail he's from trinidad and i'll tell you one thing right he is the best oxtail i've ever ate was from his pot okay <laughs> yeah. being that high praise yeah, no. yeah. absolutely yeah um so i just wanted to obviously we talked about a bit about house of rainbow i kind of want to go into that a bit more because i feel like we've jumped around in terms mm-hmm. of time so okay. house of rainbow network you founded it you're the ceo you're running the show but kind of like tell us a bit more about like how you got it started what took you back to uh, back to Nigeria again? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, House of Rainbow started, you know, because of the history that I had with coming out in church. I mean, when I first came out as, as gay was when, after my marriage broke down. Well, I mean, it was the reason my marriage broke down when I came out to my ex-wife. So I got excommunicated, excommunicated from church. Yeah. So um, I couldn't go to church because of the shame, the blame, and the denial. It was just too much. I couldn't show my face at church mm-hmm. um, because everyone would see me as an abomination. So I stayed at home for nearly two years. And in, in the 90s, you know, there, there's a high level of church broadcasting on radio. Mm-hmm. So you get to listen to radio or there's a few television channels where you can watch some of the churches. So I got really interested in a particular church in East London. Right. Um, called at the time it was called Glory Bible Church, but it later changed the name to Glory House, um, in in Barking. So, and when I finally went to this church, uh, two years after I've stayed away from church, I, I was kind of ready for church. Right. Okay. But I've also had two years of getting to know myself. Mm-hmm. So, um, I've made new gay friends. I kept some of my old f- friends who were gay. And, um, you know, I know where the clubs are. I know where the bars are. Mm-hmm. I know where to yeah. go when I needed to socialize. Yeah. So, but I, there's a part of my Christian journey that I'm also missing because I really want to go to church. So I started going to this church. And my, my first day in church was very interesting because, honestly speaking, I mean, when I tell this story, it's almost unbelievable. 
on the gate of the church, on the doorstep of the church, I met a gay man. So I said to God, what are you trying to do? Because at this point, I talked to God like we're, we're friends. We are friends. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I say, yeah, it's like God is like, try me out. So mm-hmm. You want to run away from being gay. So I put a gay man on the gate of the church that first day. And and how did I know he's gay? I mean, he was camp, he was effeminate, and he gave me his phone number before the end of the service. And I go, this is what we do at the clubs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so, and, <laughs> and we became friends after that. So, um, but obviously, I mean, I went to church and I was very mindful that I'm gay and I'm at church. But it wasn't an easy fit, to be quite honest, mm-hmm. because I didn't want anyone at church to know that I'm gay. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, I also carried a level of shame of being a Christian, especially when I'm with the gay, my gay friends and in the gay community. So I never talk about being a Christian when I'm out there, mm-hmm. you know, having fun with the gay people. But I mean, some of my gay friends notice my uneasiness when I'm out mm-hmm. at a club because I still feel that I'm I'm committing sin by going out to club. I got all the cigarette smoke all over me. Right. Yeah. And if I show up at church the next day, I'll probably still be smelling of cigarette because mm-hmm. it's quite difficult to wash it off. Mm-hmm. And but I mean, the other thing that my friends notice is that I always leave quite early on a Saturday night because I'd say I need to get home to get ready for church and mm-hmm. you need a good sleep if you mm-hmm. if especially now that I'm in my church I'm beginning to be part of some of the leadership team mm-hmm. and you know I need to show that I am responsible and I'm not going to fall asleep in the middle of the church service right. um but having said that it was really difficult for me to reconcile my faith and my sexuality I struggled a lot because again this is a church where um when it comes to father's day when it comes to gay pride, do you understand me? There is always somebody standing up in the front of the pulpit, talking about homosexuality being an abomination, and that fathers should be, you know, a good example to their children so that their children do not become gay, homosexuality. And I sit in that same church service, listening to all of this uh, rhetoric and abuse and condemnation. Yeah. And um, and I also, you know, I. I also will react, you know, with fear sometimes when someone pay me compliments in church. Right, yeah. And it was deeply uncomfortable when someone says, oh my God, you know, you're looking very handsome and your hair and your, your shirt is well mm-hmm. ironed. And I'm thinking, where's the bedroom? <laughs> you know. That's crazy. I, I, and no, it's a, and, and it, it happens a lot in church. You know, men in church will compliment you. And I think, you know, gay men, take it easy, you know. Um... But for me, it was things like that. And then, of course, um, I, I, was, I, I love cooking and I enjoy cooking. So I joined a department uh, in my church that was practically a catering department. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we do the cooking for the pastors. And when they have guests, we make sure that they have good food. Yeah. And, um, and it just took another brother in church to point it out to me that I was the only male person in that group is everything okay right. and, yeah. you know so you can see yeah. I'm now beginning to feel uneasy I'm watched yeah. and being yeah. watched you know. surveillance yeah. and, and the other thing again I also noticed just about my, myself in the church is that I, I never miss men's meeting or men's fellowship away weekend or anything to do with all the men and I'm always there because <laughs> my space I kind of claim the space because again 
it wasn't for any kind of selfish end. It's just that you know, being with the brothers, you know, this 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 is the mm-hmm. not just because I'm gay, but you know, I feel more comfortable being with the brothers. But when it comes to the heteronormative conversation and all of those things, it's deeply hurting mm-hmm. uh, in those spaces as well. So, um, and and this is the backdrop to like starting House of Rainbow mm-hmm. to be quite honest and. And of course, you know, I, the first stage of my theological training started in '96. You know, when I took on a master's degree in theology, you know, at my father's university. Right. Okay. Uh, it wasn't easy because they're extremely conservative. Um, even when we spoke about homosexuality, it's all about the abomination, and I didn't even bother to offer an alternative view because yeah. I knew that it would not get me anywhere. I wouldn't right. score any brownie points mm-hmm. at all. So I went through all of that, and I was ordained, you know, by my mm-hmm. father's ministry in 12 September 1998. So I believe for my father is one of the best days of his life that he was able to anoint and ordain his own child mm-hmm. into ministry, or at least one of his child, in one of his children into ministry. And I think that for me, you know, I remember that day very well, like it was yesterday. And I just remember, my God, my life is just about to get tougher. Right. Because now I'm a minister. So I remember after that, I couldn't enter the office with all of my heart because I even haven't had the chance to discuss with my father about my divorce to my ex-wife. I've not had the chance to talk to him about the reasons for the divorce. And I really wanted to, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't find you know, the, the the opportunity, because every time I want to talk to my father, we're in Lagos, Nigeria. So mm-hmm. it wasn't the best place, you know, mm-hmm. geographically, geographically to be coming out as gay. So I just kept quiet. But of course, you know, it didn't take long um, because I was still with the Pentecostal church even when I was ordained. So um, four years later, precisely, no, actually two years after my ordination, um, I did a documentary with, I think it was Channel 4, called Black, Bent and Beautiful. I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love the title of that. <laughs> yeah, that will get the viewers in, to be fair. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it was, it was a good story. Um, there were four black LGBT people that were in that documentary, and I was one of them. But I unfortunately asked to be silhouetted in that documentary because I was so afraid. Mm-hmm. By this time, I've been part of the church community and so on. I was so afraid. Oh, my God, if this comes out, I'm going to be dead. Um, but guess what? A lot of people in my church watched the documentary and they knew that it was Oh, genetic. really? Did you have the same voice? Yeah. No, it wasn't just the voice. They just changed my voice. The things you were talking the, about. The things I was talking about. Yeah. And at the time, I had a coat that only Colombo has the same. So, oh, right, okay. I, and I wore that coat religiously to right, church. Okay. Yeah. And, and the te- time, I also had a red bicycle, and no one else had a red bicycle. Cycling to church and back was my neighborhood. Yeah. I know. Right, and yeah. then, and then the bridge of my glasses because I wear glasses as well. So the bridge of my glasses, like, okay, we know that's today. So. Um, and this was also the days that you can just record by pressing two buttons as a VHS. Right. Yeah. So I'm sure many people in the church recorded it and then passed it on to the pastor and said, look, one of your right. leaders. And, right. and I, I got summoned into church office to... The, when they asked me, was that me? I didn't deny. I said it was me. And in that moment, the, 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 the time of hell started. You know, they prayed for me. Uh, they called me contaminated soul. Uh, in prayer time, they stood on me. And then, and then, of course, you know, it didn't go away because I was in a silhouette in a documentary 
Sometimes I wear a hat to church, and then people say, "Oh, Judah, are you trying to hide again?" You know that Whoa. kind of yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There were snide remarks, and then and during prayer time, you know, when we come to to pray, you know, there one day a, a, a brother came and put his hand on my shoulder, and then he pressed really hard on my shoulder, and then he started to speak in tongues, and then he started to pray that you know, Judah, God will change you and will give you a wife and things like that. I turned around, I grabbed the guy. He was bigger than me, but I believe that in that moment, I lifted him right off the ground with my two hands. Yeah. And I was yelling at him, I don't want a wife, I don't want a wife. I shoved him somewhere. I ran out and I was crying. Uh, you know what? I mean, the, the moments of hell just continued. Um, and also there was a time where in the same church, I went through a period uh, considered conversion therapy. Right. Where they would pray for me and asked me to make confessions and and asked me questions about who else is gay in the church. Um, have I passed a demon to somebody else? So they were name calling yeah. and things like that. And there was also a time where in one of our prayer meetings where they had maps of London around the world and we were asked to pray, you know, for different geographical areas of London. So mm -hmm. uh, Brixton was where the drugs were too heavy. We have to pray against drug activities. Stoke Newton and King's Cross back in those days where the red light districts, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. And then the areas like Croydon was where the knife crime was prevalent. And then here comes the map of Soho. Mm. We were asked to pray against the spirit of homosexuality. You know what I did? I just grabbed a chair and I sat down because that moment I've had enough. And then people were praying, you know, really loud about, you know, against the spirit of homosexuality. So one of the leaders in the prayer group came to me while I was sitting there and I said, Jude, why are you not praying against the spirit of homosexuality? I look up at him and I said, I don't have the burden to pray against the spirit of homosexuality. So when you introduce the next prayer point, I will pray. I think in that moment, I think I gave them more than enough, right. you know, to think that, okay, he's gay mm -hmm. and he's not going to pray against this demonic spirit. And that broke me a lot. So I, at one point I left. You know, I mean, they didn't tell me to leave, but I left because it was too much for me. Yeah. So I then decided, you know, um, to stay at home. I, I wasn't interested in church anymore. I decided to stay at home. And then a group of people were visiting from South Africa, and I hosted some of them in my home. And when they came along, you know, they, they were uh, musicians. They said, we're going to church. We're going to sing. Come with us. I said, no, I'm done with you. You carry on. Yeah. And then lunch will be served by this time when you're back. Something yeah. like that. So um, they went about their business for about two weeks. And at the end of their time, they left me the phone number of a church. It's called the Metropolitan Community Church in North London in Camden Town. They said, Talk to the pastor there. It's a church that welcomes gay people, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I, I would say, no, I, I've been to one. I've been to several myself, so I don't know one. So I summoned the courage and I called the pastor. And honestly, it was one of the best things I did in my life. And when I spoke with this man over the phone, uh, you know, for, for several hours, I just knew that I think I found the place that I, can help me mm -hmm. reconcile my faith and my sexuality. So when I joined the church, um, I... Went for a little while just to get to used to it and know the people. Mm -hmm. And then the moment I got involved in 2003, I found out about, you know, transferring my clergy credentials from my father's church ordination mm -hmm. to this church. So I got a scholarship. I got a scholarship for two years to study, you know, inclusive and liberation theology uh, at the Pacific School of Religion in California. 
um, you know, plus my placement in the church. And in 2005, I completed my, my training. Yeah. I transferred my credentials to this denomination. And they asked me, what do you want to do now? I said, I want to go to Nigeria to start House of Rainbow. <laughs> and everyone looked at me like, you're nuts. <laughs> but I mean, it's just that, I mean, obviously, um, the idea of House of Rainbow in Nigeria had been in my heart from the moment that I came out as gay. And mm -hmm. when I was experiencing all those disappointments with my own church community when I was married and then the ch second church community that, you know, I left because of the abuse towards me and my sexuality. And I was thinking, God, would there ever be a place that gay people like myself can go to and worship freely without the abuse? So when I trained with the Metropolitan Community Church, it actually gave me the license to, f to be free. Right. And, and I wanted to share that with people, particularly from my own country as well. So mm -hmm. I went to Nigeria in 2006. But the irony is that January of 2006, the Nigerian government, um, under the presidency of um, Goodluck Jonathan, introduced the anti-gay bill as a gift to the country. And it was the same year that I went to Nigeria to start right. the House of Rainbow Church. So it wasn't an easy feat. I mean, within months of being in Nigeria, I was in front of the Nigerian parliament. I could not believe. I, I just wanted to go to Nigeria and start a praise and worship group. I didn't want to go to Nigeria and start a human rights movement, but we had to be the human rights church. Right. Uh, because people came to our church with broken noses and broken arms, and we the first thing we invested in was the first aid kit. It was really terrible. We, many people were afraid, but the numbers just kept on growing. We started with 32 people. The numbers were growing into hundreds before the end of the year. And I just said, God, I didn't prepare for this. I don't know what to do. I mean, my home at the time became the homeless shelter because people would leave their home mm -hmm. and come and stay by us because they didn't have anywhere to go. Now with all the stories about people being ejected from their homes and fired from their jobs because of their sexuality, there was no doubt about the impact of sexual health. HIV was prevalent within our communities. And how do we respond to all of this but to get involved? So that's how House of Rainbow became so diversified that, you know, we started to look at faith gatherings. We started to look at how do we respond to the issues of sexual health, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, building uh, relationships and helping our families and our friends, yeah. you know, to understand us. I mean, in the UK, additional things we do is that we support asylum seekers, right. um, you know, on their journey whilst they're regulating their stay here. And also yeah. we document hate crime for those who might have experienced it domestically or within the public on the grounds of their sexual orientation and gender identity. So there is a lot to do. Right. There's a lot to do. I mean, the, the vision of House of Rainbow moving forward um, is, and th th there are two angles. One of them is the radically inclusive mission. And uh, we're focusing on Africa to start with. I mean, if we can get the ball rolling on that one, it'd be amazing. And the component of it is actually uh, a study possibly academic level of study on what the Bible says about homosexuality, mm -hmm. including what it's like to be an African who is LGBT. And of course, the second side of it is a kind of revival of fellowship service where, you know, people who have been denied the opportunity to worship in church can actually worship, mm -hmm. you know, in a space and, and they can raise their hands, they can, yeah. they can sing and pray and, yeah, yeah. and not have to hide. So it's things like that. And of course, you know, House of Rainbow has been involved with activities in about 22 countries, mm -hmm. uh, mostly African countries, I mean, a few in the Caribbean. And, and you know, we're very proud of that. And, and, and I wish and pray that it continues and it develops and it grows bigger and bigger.
Okay. Well, um, I'm so I'm so like it's like pretty much out of time. So, would you, um, a big thanks for today. Yeah. Um, there's a, well, there's a lot to discuss. I think there is a well. lot. There is a lot. Um, like, I know I don't know how we're gonna do it again, but I'd love to have you back on the podcast. Yeah. I, I would, would like love to scratch the surface. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I'd so love many, to be back. So many questions. I've got indeed, like, indeed. I tell you, but no, we are super, super grateful for you yeah. taking the time out to come and talk with Kevin and I. Oh, thanks. Yeah. That's another episode of Black Boy Joy. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at, at BlackBoyJoyPodcast. Um, do you want to give you? Yeah, I mean, I, I would like people to follow me on Instagram as well. It's Jide McCauley, one word, and also House of Rainbow underscore um, on Instagram. Of course, on Twitter, it's House of Rainbow and it's Rev Jide. Uh, for me on Twitter, so follow. I'm also on Facebook as well. Yeah, and I mean, people people contact me or inbox me with messages and questions, so I'm quite happy to take that moving forward. Okay, there'll be Instagram post up. Uh, yeah, and we'll, we'll put that link on the episode as well. Yeah. So thank you very much. That's another episode done. Thanks, thank, you. Speak to you soon. thank you. Thank you.